You are listening to Where is the Line? The stories you will hear will be depraved, disturbing, and true. If you are easily unsettled, you may find this program offensive. And if you are under the age of 18, fuck off. A Christmas Eve party became a crime scene. The bodies inside so badly burned that police were unsure if the victims died in the shooting rampage or the subsequent fire. Everybody drinking blood, everybody eating brains. Some monster party. Everybody eating flesh, everybody breaking bones. Some monster party. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Or whatever the fuck it is that you like to announce during the most miserable time of the year. Thank you for listening to episode 21 of Where is the Line? My name is Kevin and with me today is my dearest friend and someone who maybe mentions buttholes too much, Samantha. Say something disturbing, Samantha. I'm going to a Christmas party. I'm going to a Christmas party. When you hear the phrase, I'm going to a Christmas party, honk your horn. So it's December 13th when you're listening to this. Uh, We're amid the holiday shopping season. That's right. Have you completed your Christmas shopping? I have not completed it. And actually, I've only bought presents for my cats so far. Oh, really? Yeah. What What are the cats getting? Well, so far, they've gotten a ton of new different toys, treats, and they've got a new cat tree coming their way. Oh. In the mail. Nice. Yeah. I like to treat them. I haven't done hardly any of my Christmas shopping, and it's stressing me out. Mm-hmm. Everything about the fucking holiday stresses me out. Oh, me too. This you got to is... go see people that you might not want to see. I just feel on edge till the whole damn thing's over with. I do too, because I'm already dealing with my depression that Halloween is over, and yeah. then Christmas time, or just... This holiday, Thanksgiving and Christmas, my least favorite time of year. And they're kind of like the opposite of Halloween, you know? Yeah. Halloween's about like blood and guts and murder and gore and costumes. And then fucking Christmas comes around and it's about laughing children and just nasty shit like that. Agreed. No, some (laughs) children are okay. I have some friends that have some children that are delightful. But on the whole, I do not enjoy being around kids. No, no, me either. We got some new patrons. Really? At our depraved level, we have Sarah Newman-Brown. I believe she's from Australia. She is. That's Natasha's friend from Australia. And at our troubled level, we have Bailey Gilliland, who, if his photo is of him... A fantastic beard. I've seen it. I thought Bailey was a girl, though. I, well, I did, too. <laughs> when I first but, saw the But that yeah. picture is uh, yeah. a guy with an amazing beard that I'm jealous of. No, not. patchy. <laughs> I just got spots on my face that don't grow hair. It's weird. You should start shading the men with a little bit of mascara. <laughs> I've tried growing <laughs> it out because somebody told me that if you grow it out, it'll cover those bald spots. Yeah. And then just what happened was I just look like if I grow it out anymore, it just looks like this white, thin, <laughs> wiry, wispy, like weeds in the desert. That's what my face looks like if I grow my beard out too long. Or like or like pubes on the elderly. <laughs> what? I- <laughs> Does elderly, do elderly people's pubes thin out i've never looked at elderly pubes oh well now that we've gone over all of the important things yes are you ready to get into this episode oh yeah this christmas special for sure so if you're listening grab some eggnog and a candy cane 
throw another log on the fire and gather the kids around the radio. The Where is the Line Christmas special starts now. In 2008, on Christmas Day, children all over the world were waking up early to see what Santa Claus had left for them under their Christmas trees. For most children, this Christmas morning ritual involves waking up parents who would rather sleep in and continue dreaming of the adventures and exploits that they might have had had they not had children. As their children, eyes encased with crust, shred wrapping paper and unnecessarily distribute it to all corners of the family home, the parents prepare a cup of coffee, rub their temples in a feeble attempt to ward off the inevitable headache, and they turn on the television. Most of these parents on this Christmas day in 2008 were met with gentle stories from their local news stations about Christmas day parade preparations or segments in which some fragile elderly woman instructs them on how to prepare the perfect Christmas ham. Parents who lived in range of Southern California's news affiliates, however, were met with a much darker Christmas morning news report. In those early hours of Christmas Day, local stations were reporting that just before midnight on Christmas Eve, a man dressed as Santa Claus entered a Covina, California home and opened fire, killing three people. Santa Claus then set this home on fire before driving 25 miles away and committing suicide. Because of the intensity of the house fire, reporters speculated that Santa Claus had used Molotov cocktails to initiate the blaze. Shortly after those initial reports of three people dead in that house fire, three more bodies were discovered in the still smoldering wreckage of the home. Throughout that Christmas morning, the body count would continue to rise. Once all of the charred remains were excavated from the rubble of this home, it was found that nine people had died in this Christmas Eve massacre, including Santa Claus's own suicide, the total death toll settled finally at 10. It would also be discovered that Santa Claus did not, as was previously surmised, use Molotov cocktails to set the home on fire. No, he came to the Kavina home that night armed not only with multiple firearms, but also with a fucking flamethrower. <laughs> My God. So why would Santa Claus do such a thing as this, and how did he come to hate Christmas almost as much as I do? That's what we're talking about today. That one time when Santa Claus lost his shit and killed a bunch of people with a flamethrower. Our Santa Claus in the story is a man named Bruce Pardo. He was a software engineer living in California, and he happened to look exactly like young Biff Tannen from Back to the Future. Did you notice that? Yes, Holy shit, I thought the same thing. Just fucking like Biff. That's so crazy that you thought that too. Yeah. There'll be a picture of uh, of Bruce Pardo on our website. Maybe I'll add a side-by-side with Biff Tannen from Back to the Future. Good idea. Bruce Pardo worked for a defense contractor in California called the ITT Corporation. And this was one of those companies that's huge and also one of those companies that most people haven't really heard of. Do you know what ITT stands for? What? International Telephone and Telegraph. Okay. So that's how old this company is. Yes. The Telegraph is in their name. Yes. This company started in 1920. It was a competitor to the American Telephone and Telegraph Company. Mm -hmm. 
better known as AT&T. Yeah. Did you know that second T in AT&T was for telegraph? No, I didn't. I didn't know that either. I did not know I that. I did not know that either until I looked it up. So Bruce Pardo is making pretty good money. He's making uh, over $120,000 a year writing code for this defense contractor. So he was making a comfortable living. He had a nice house with a pool. He had a cute girlfriend named Elena. And around 1999, Elena got pregnant. And nine months later, Bruce and Elena had a baby boy that they named Matthew. And at this point, things aren't too bad for Bruce. Uh, he and Elena never got married, but they got along well enough. And uh, it seems like, by all accounts, Bruce loved uh, their son, Matthew, right. that they had together. In 2001, though, when baby Matthew was about a year old, his mother, Elena, went shopping and left this infant with Bruce. And this is around the age of uh, when children start crawling and pulling themselves up and kind of getting into all kinds of shit. Right. And at some point, while Elena was out shopping, this child got out of Bruce's sight. Uh, Bruce, I guess, just wasn't paying attention. And baby Matthew crawled out an open door at the back of the house and toppled over into Bruce's swimming pool. Every parent's nightmare yeah. if they have a pool and children. Yes. So Bruce eventually realizes that he's not seeing his child around anywhere and he starts searching for him. He finds the child in the pool and he pulls the infant out, but it seems to Bruce like he's gotten there too late. The child seems dead. It's not, it's not responsive. It's not breathing. It's not conscious. So about the time that Bruce pulls the child out of the pool and he's starting to panic. And then that's when Elena gets back home from shopping and she finds Bruce and Matthew by the pool. Bruce is crying and he's frantic. And the three of them load baby Matthew up in the car and they head to the local ER. And so when they get to the hospital, the doctors are able to revive Matthew and uh, the child gets airlifted to Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. And Bruce is just, according to Elena, when she talked about it later, said that he was just overcome with guilt yeah. that he had let this happen. During Matthew's first week in Children's Hospital's intensive care unit, they say that Bruce would not leave the child's side. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't go home to shower, leave to eat, change clothes, nothing. He stayed by that kid's bed for that entire week. Yeah. Once this little one-year-old, uh, his condition stabilizes, the doctors start testing him, and they discover that Matthew has suffered very severe brain damage due to the extended period that he spent without supply of oxygen to his brain. And they tell Bruce and Elena that Matthew will spend his entire life confined to a wheelchair. That's horrible. That's got to be rough. Yes. Even as someone who doesn't like children, I, I at this point am feeling bad for Bruce Pardo. Same here. And this is the point where Bruce, who'd been just kind of a regular guy before this, uh, they said that he was kind of a ladies man, you know, mm -hmm. liked to go out on dates, didn't seem especially off. But after this happens, this is when he kind of starts unraveling. After Matthew's accident um, and after they find out that Matthew is going to be disabled yeah. for the duration of his life, Bruce Pardo's relationship with Elena starts going downhill. And uh, just six months after this accident, that couple breaks up. And when they do, Bruce won't have anything to do with this child of theirs. He stops helping with the medical expenses, too. And so Matthew's medical expenses over this were around $350,000. 
in just the first year. Right. And so I, I, that's a shitty thing of Bruce Pardo to do. Absolutely. But also, I mean, that that guilt that he's carrying over this, I, I would not I would not abandon them like Bruce Pardo did. But I can understand the impulse of something so horrible happening that you just want to remove yourself from that situation. Yeah. Remove yourself entirely yeah. from it and just try to act like it didn't happen. I understand the impulse to do that. Right. But you just don't do that. Exactly. Elena ends up having to sue Bruce. She collects $100,000, which she uses to set up, well, uses in part to pay Matthew's medical bills and then uses uh, the rest of it to set up a trust that's going to pay out $240 a month for the rest of Matthew's life. After that, Bruce completely cuts ties with Matthew and Elena. They were still having some communication. Yeah. Um, he wasn't really helping out with the bills. He wasn't talking to them a lot. But after that, he will not say a word to them, doesn't answer phone calls, doesn't call, nothing. And, you know, and Elena, when you hear her talk about this, she seems like she doesn't, she doesn't blame Bruce for the accident at all. Mm-hmm. And she seems to understand that Bruce was completely overcome with guilt about this accident. Yeah. And she she seems to feel honestly kind of bad for Bruce in some of the interviews that you see with her. She doesn't seem as angry as you would expect someone Absolutely. to be in that situation. She was incredibly understanding. So anyway, after that settlement, Bruce never spoke to Elena again. And he never saw his son again after that. That's cold as ice. And Bruce Pardo decides he's going to take a fresh start on life. After spending about a year pretending that his relationship with Elena never happened and that he never had a child, Bruce Pardo meets a woman named Sylvia. So Bruce is trying to start over. He meets Sylvia. He gets a dog. It's an Akita. Names it Saki. He takes it on walks all the time. He really, really loved the dog, too. Yes, yes. You know, and at this point, I feel like Bruce Pardo, apart from not being able to deal with... A major tragedy. Yeah. He doesn't seem like a bad guy. Yeah. He looks like Biff. He looks like an asshole, but he doesn't seem like that bad of a guy at this point, apart from the abandoning his child. Yes. His disabled child. So he meets Sylvia, gets a dog. Uh, Sylvia already has three children, but things are going pretty well. The friends that Bruce and Sylvia had together said that that couple fell in love really quickly. They seemed really happy. They used to go on double dates with other couples. Mm -hmm. And people said that Bruce Pardo had a really good sense of humor and uh, he was generally a likable guy. Yeah. So they get married uh, in January 2006 and Sylvia moves in with Bruce. She's looking forward to having another child. She wants to have a child with Bruce. But when I say that Bruce Pardo pretended that his previous relationship and his existing disabled child, when I say that he pretended that never happened, he really pretended he never told Sylvia about that relationship or that he had a child. Right. Which is insane. Mm hmm. Sylvia and Bruce get married. Before that first year their marriage is even up, they aren't even sleeping in the same room anymore. They say that as soon as they got married, Bruce pretty much immediately started getting withdrawn. I kind of feel like, you know, I am just 
kind of making shit up, but I kind of feel like her desire for another child with Bruce was maybe bringing up the memories of what happened with Matthew. Absolutely. That makes complete sense. And maybe maybe that's what caused this this withdrawing sort of behavior with Bruce. Yeah, and I'm sure that he was suffering from probably undiagnosed PTSD. I'm sure he was. Yeah. And so the couple doesn't talk much. They stop having sex. They argue over money. Bruce makes about three times as much as Sylvia does at this point. And, you know, Bruce had that six-figure job. Yes. Sylvia is making maybe around twenty, thirty thousand 30000 a year. Right. And so Bruce doesn't want to spend his money on <laughs> Sylvia's three kids. So fucked up. <laughs> he apparently likes the kids just fine. But he feels like Sylvia needs to be paying for those children. By herself. By herself. Uh, And so Bruce, you know, at this point in Bruce's life, he's starting to not look like an okay guy anymore. Yeah. Uh, He did previously. Now. He wouldn't open a joint bank account with Sylvia? No. Which, you know what? That's totally fine. Married couples, I'm all for having separate bank accounts. But they're married and she expresses that she would like for them to have a shared bank account. And he is just absolutely not having it. When I was married, we didn't have a sh- shared bank account. Well, we made around the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. And that probably, I did not want a shared bank account. Yeah. And that probably worked out in her favor because I'm terrible with money. Mm-hmm. Well, but you guys, you still shared expenses. and. Well, yeah, we didn't have children. And you didn't have children. You know, yeah. This like, just, this seems so like... The antithesis of what a a good family man should be doing at this point. Yeah. And so Sylvia starts going through some of Bruce's things. Mm -hmm. And she starts going through his tax documents. And this is something that that every article skips over. They just say Sylvia was going through his tax documents. Why was she going through his tax documents? Yeah. I feel like... (laughs) She wanted to know exactly how much money Bruce had and how much he could afford to spend on those three kids that she had. Yes. Uh, But in the process of going through Bruce's tax documents, she discovers that Bruce is claiming a dependent. And that dependent is his disabled child, Matthew, that he has never told her about. Ooh, a startling discovery, no doubt. Yeah, and she confronts Bruce about this. And he denies it. I don't know how. <laughs> I, I really would like to know what his denial monologue to her was. Yeah. Was. I mean, you've got, she finds your tax document. She's pointing at them. You are claiming a dependent. How do you even. What do you, what excuse, what lie do you come up with? And you're totally busted. Yeah. So Bruce denies that he has a child that he's claiming as a dependent on his taxes, which also brings up Bruce isn't paying a fucking dime to this kid's mother. Why the hell is he claiming Matthew as a dependent? Yes, that is my question. And number two, if he's so goddamn upset about this that he's refusing to admit that this is something within his reality that this happened to this child. Yeah. Why the fuck is he filling out tax papers on it? Yes. So strange. Yeah, it's I don't get that about him because I I can understand the trying to pretend everything didn't happen. But every year when you fill out your tax documents, you're still going to claim this child as a dependent? I don't I don't get that. No. So anyway, Sylvia Bruce's wife now wife with the three kids 
calls Bruce's mother, and Bruce's mother tells her everything. Yes. About baby Matthew and the accident. And so Sylvia is pissed off that Bruce has a child, one, that he never told her about, and two, that uh, he has this disabled child that he's not helping. And so uh, before they even get to their second anniversary, Sylvia is asking for a divorce from Bruce Pardo. So Sylvia files for a dissolution of their marriage in March 2008. The divorce proceedings get drawn out over almost a full year. Sylvia is initially asking for $3,200 a month in spousal support, which that kind of, I kind of got derailed at this point Mm -hmm. because I realized in the United States, we talk about our incomes in terms of our pre-taxed income. Yes. You know, so if if somebody says they make $100,000 a year, that's that's what starts out. Right. (laughs) After taxes and benefits and all that shit get cut. You're probably making somewhere in the $60,000 a year range. No doubt. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I was curious about, because Bruce really fought against this $3,200 a month support payment that mm-hmm. she was wanting. And so I kind of worked it out, and I figured, I get I get about 68%, I figured out the percentage, I get 68% of my actual income, and the rest goes to taxes and all that other shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Bruce was making $120,000 a year. Which means he's probably bringing home 84000 a year, which is $7,000 a month. So she's asking for half of his income. Yeah. And while this is going on, while this is still tied up in court, Bruce Pardo loses his job. Yes. And that happened in July. He tries to apply for unemployment benefits, but he's not eligible for them. He's got this side hustle. Uh-huh. A little computer programming gig, uh, but it doesn't make any money. I think that all together he made $6,000 off of that the entire time that he had it. But Bruce, he saved up some money. He has about $80,000 in the bank, and he starts kind of slowly taking this money out. Right. <laughs> he, doesn't want, <laughs> he doesn't want the court to know about that $80,000, so he starts taking some of that out. And for one thing, he's, he's doing this to keep it away from Sylvia. Yeah. He's very quickly going broke. So him pulling this money out of the bank, this might also be the point where Bruce Pardo is hatching out the plan of this hideous fucking thing that he is going to do. Absolutely. Because this is the first thing that he did that makes sense in the context of his massacre. Yeah. A couple of months after he starts pulling this money out of the bank, the divorce proceedings are still going on. Bruce is down in the dumps. But he does something very peculiar for someone who is depressed. In September, a few months before Christmas, Mm -hmm. he goes to a local costume shop and buys a Santa Claus suit. And he tells the owner of this shop that he needs it to be extra large because he wants to be an especially plump Santa Claus. That's right. So the lady that owns this costume shop sews in some compartments in the Santa Claus suit for extra stuffing. A few months down the line, when she hears about what happens, she realizes that she has sewn compartments for firearms into the Santa Claus suit. Yeah, um, Bruce paid $300 for this extra-large Santa suit, which came complete with boots, belt, glasses, and a hat. And he told the seamstress that this was for a big November 8th holiday party that he was going to. 
Was there a holiday party in November? No. Did he get okay? There was so, no such party. That's just what okay. he told her. Okay. So at this point, he is definitely planning. So all the way yes. back in September, he is planning this Christmas Eve massacre. There was no party in November that he was going to. Correct. I feel like that's an uncommon separation of time when you start getting something like that together from then until the time that it's executed. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of a lot of time for rumination. And um, police say that they have records that show that Bruce Pardo had even been purchasing in July um, ammunition, guns, and parts to make this flamethrower that he built. Mm -hmm. So now Bruce Pardo has his Santa Claus suit. He has his guns. We're getting up close to this massacre that he's about to perpetrate. Yes. A week before this happens... His divorce proceedings with Sylvia conclude, and Bruce Pardo gets ordered to pay Sylvia $10,000, and that dog, Saki, yes. that he's been walking every day, he has to hand the dog over to Sylvia. Yes, and that does not sit well with him. No. He's already planning this massacre, and now he has to give his dog over. Yes, and even though he did get the house and the cars, losing Saki was beyond the pill. And Sylvia gets the diamond wedding ring, the $10,000 cash, most of the furniture as well. And I, I think that this is the point where he's already unhinged. He's already planning this. But this is probably the point where he decides that this is something he's actually going to do. Yes. And so the divorce is finalized on December 18th. On December 19th, Bruce is supposed to deliver the $10,000 in cashier's checks to Sylvia's lawyer, mm-hmm. but he never shows up. And so now Bruce gets in touch with a friend of his from high school named Steve Irwin. How about that? <laughs> I loved the crocodile hunter. I did too. That's so sad that he died. Yeah, I actually cried when it happened. Oh, he was like the most pleasant guy ever. And he he was like the most pleasant badass that has ever existed. I saw, uh, like, uh, there was an episode with him where he was, like, chasing giraffes in a Jeep or something and had his head out the side, and the Jeep came too close to a tree, and, like, he smashed his head in a tree, and he was bleeding all over the place. And then he's just like, let's rub some sand in it. <laughs> My Australian accent's fucking terrible. No, no, that was good. No, it wasn't. That was terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> Crikey. Rub, rub some sand in it, mate. God damn, that's fucking terrible. I, I, in my head, thought that I was way better at accents than that. Well, I don't think you practice your Australian accent that much, so. Mate? Mate? mate. That's good. Crikey. That's, that's all right. Rub some sand in it. That's not sand. They don't say, well, okay, anyway. <laughs> so he tells his friend Steve Irwin from high school. Uh, that he's going to come visit him for a couple of weeks, and he's going to show up on Christmas morning. And Bruce Pardo buys a plane ticket to get there. So now he's got a place he's going to go. Mm-hmm. He's going to go hang out with Steve Irwin. Mm-hmm. He's got five handguns. He's built his homemade flamethrower, which he equips. Uh, the fuel source in that is methanol. It's racing fuel. Yes. Methanol has some really interesting properties. Like when, it, when it catches on fire. Well, it burns clear and it doesn't produce smoke on its own. Mm-hmm. So there's a video that you can find of a uh, race car driver who caught on fire. 
and he jumps out of the car and he's on fire, but you can't see the flames. Mm-hmm. And so he's running around begging for help. Yeah. But since it's racing fuel, methanol, that's ignited on him. Yes. People are looking at him and they're like, I don't know what, what his deal is. Like, why is he acting like that? But he's actually on fire, but you cannot see the flames. Oh, my gosh. And also, uh, something that's going to come up later, if you try to extinguish methanol, it's incredibly difficult because methanol will still burn at four parts water. Right. So if you have a cup of methanol mm-hmm. and you pour five cups of water on it, it will still burn. That's dangerous. Which <laughs> is going to come into play later, and I am absolutely certain that Bruce Pardo knew this, and that's why he used the racing fuel. Yes. So on top of the guns, the flamethrower, he also builds a bomb. And so now he's got everything he needs and Christmas Eve comes around. Before we continue with our story of this Christmas massacre, we're going to relay to you some memories of Christmas's past. That's right, Kevin. I would love to tell your story about one of my own Christmas of past. May one I of your s- own Christmas <laughs> of past. All right. That's right. Let's go for it. Okay. So I'm about seven years old. My mother and I, for like almost over a year at that point, had been on our own. My dad had gone away. We're struggling. My mother's working in a shoe store, uh, doing her best to support both of us. We didn't have a car. We walked everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it was snowing that winter. We'd walk two miles to the Kroger's and back in the snow. We walked everywhere. So times were really tight. And my mother, she did the best that she could. She actually, because uh, we didn't have a lot of money to spare, and what we did have was spent on bills and what we could get as far as food, she would often sew me stuffed animals which I thought were awesome. I loved them to death. But uh, starting in November of that year, we both started volunteering with the Salvation Army. And I think they were helping us probably with maybe food. I'm not really certain about what kind of benefits we were getting. I didn't know you grew up Salvation Army poor. Yes. For a time in my life, my mother and I were dirt poor. I'm talking for a meal, we would share a can of tuna fish and a stick of crackers. There was a period when I was a kid, we were on food stamps, Mm -hmm. but I'm imagining you in an unfurnished shack sitting in front of like one single log on the floor that's on (laughs) fire with just a can opener and some tuna. Well, we did have a very tiny apartment and yeah, we were just living with the bare minimums. So that holiday season... My mother got connected with the Salvation Army, and we were going to be bell ringers that whole holiday season. And I think, you know, like I said, they were helping us maybe with like a food pantry type situation. I'm not really sure about that. I just know that we were getting some food from the Salvation Army. And in exchange, we were ringing the bell in front of a Roses. Have you ever heard of a Roses? Mm -mm. Yeah, I don't know if Alabama had Roses back in the 80s, but they were a store much like a Sears, and that's where we were ringing our bell. And my mother, she didn't want me to think that this was like something bad, and it wasn't. We were helping people, but she gave me a little harmonica, 
and she wanted me to sing and dance and play the harmonica for the people because <laughs> we thought it would get more money in the bucket, and it did. I think I thought myself to be a Shirley Temple type. <laughs> I can see you kind of have the look. The well, red hair and the red curly hair. That's what my mother would tell me. She would call me her little Shirley Temple. And I would sing like on the good ship. I would sing that. And I would try to tap dance in front of the store. And I'm sure I looked like a maniac. And I did not know how to play this harmonica. But I would be playing on the harmonica. And I'd be dancing around. <laughs> and um, people loved it. People were coming to watch me. Except some of uh, my fellow classmates. They were shopping at the Roses during the holiday season, and a lot of them had seen me doing that with my mother. What grade were you in? Uh, I think first grade. I guess parents talked to their kids, but somehow the kids came back to school making fun of me and calling me poor. But my mom told me, no, this is really awesome what we're doing. And it was, because I raked in so much money for the Salvation Army that year because of my talent. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a happier story. I didn't know this was going to be a, I sat in an unfurnished apartment with a can of tuna. It does get happy. Okay. All right. We're okay. Not, I thought that was it. So Christmas is right around the corner. And maybe like the week before Christmas, the Salvation Army, uh, they were doing a big event that night where the children that are getting toys that year from the Salvation Army, they all come and the parents come and everyone gets a meal. And then that night, uh, they have Santa come and they give out all the children toys. So the time has come where Santa has arrived and they're calling up the kids, you know, to come up and get their Christmas present. Next thing I know, they call my name. So I go up there and the Santa Claus pulls out of his bag this giant. Samantha has brought a prop with her. It is a teddy. Oh, that's cute. I know. Wait, why are its legs yellow? Oh, they're not yellow. Okay. <laughs> well, this <laughs> is very old. I've had this since I was seven, but they pulled out this giant white teddy bear that's wearing a Santa Claus suit. Mm -hmm. Well, just just the top part. His legs and bottom half are bare, and he has a you nice- You rubbed your hand up <laughs> the inside of that teddy bear's thigh just now. I did not mean to. <laughs> um, okay, so when he handed me this bear, which at the time was almost the size that I was, I go running back to my mom. I'm showing it off. I'm so excited. This- Santa bear, and that's what I call him, Santa bear, became one of the first stuffed animals that I started hunching. Oh my God, you hunched that? Yeah. You're showing me the bear that you hunched. Yeah. I Okay, I have to say something. No. What? I kind of want to smell it. Smell it? <laughs> like, I bet it does. I mean, I'm sure it doesn't, smell but it. like. I want you to tell me what it smells okay. like. I've never washed it. But I have not hunched what, it in what, forever. What part did, did you hunch the face? What did you hunch on this? No, I pretty much made love to this missionary style. Uh, I never hunched his nose or anything like that. Okay, so it would be. Yeah, don't hunch the, cr I mean, don't smell the crotch. No, his crotch smells fine. <laughs> All right, I'm going to smell, smell Samantha's. <laughs> smell it. Daddy Bear's crotch. Do it. Okay, I'm doing it in front of the microphone. Okay. So you, it smells like perfume. <laughs> <laughs> what? Hey, you perfumed this. <laughs> you didn't, you could not have known that I was going to want to sniff this. Are you kidding me? Of course I knew you were going to smell it. <laughs> I freshened him up. <laughs> you especially perfumed the crotch. I don't, I don't think yes. I Oh my God. Clothes. I just spread this teddy bear's legs. You, you stuck a perfume bottle. No, no, no. Come on. I on just, the, no, I you lightly, smell it. Let me smell that. Smell his head and then smell his taint. I'm smelling the head. 
Oh man, that smells really good. Yeah, but now, but now smell the taint. It's much stronger down there. Well, I can't account for that. <laughs> but I want you to know, this was the first teddy bear I ever started hunching before the Great Smoky Mountain Black Bear faux rug. This was my first hunching bear. That was your first hunching bear. Yes. And unlike the bear rug I used to have, which fell apart and my parents threw it away, I still have this. And every time I look at him, I think about all those nights I made love to him in my bed. <laughs> what, did, what did it smell like before you perfumed it? Um, moldy. <laughs> 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 well, because I'd had him in a box for years oh, and years and years. Okay, because okay, it was in the box. Yeah, yeah with okay. other old stuffed animals yeah, I not had. because of the hunter. No. Okay. Good Lord. Yeah. I was fresh as a daisy when I was little. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a short Christmas Day story. Ooh, I'd love to hear it. It's a story that uh, my parents like to tell every Christmas, and it's about the first Christmas that I was old enough to appreciate having presents and things. Okay. I was old enough to talk. I don't know how old that is for children because I do not understand child development. Mm-hmm. What did that be like? Two. I was. I it was the first time that I was old enough to understand about Santa Claus mm-hmm. and Christmas and getting presents and things. And my dad, that we had a Christmas tree. My dad set up a train set around the Christmas tree, and there were a bunch of wrapped presents under it and everything. Mom and Dad were super excited. You're next to the Christmas tree, waiting for me to get up, holding a camera to capture the moment of my excitement. When I see all of this shit under the tree, and apparently I walk into the living room, I see the tree, I see the train going around it, I see all the presents, and I rub my eyes and I say, I want a Coke. (laughs) (laughs) And I went into the kitchen and got a Coca-Cola. That's hard to believe. I have never been an excitable person. I think I'm always... I am now and have always been just a little bit sad at all times. Yeah. I, have you ever seen me get excited about anything? Very rarely. Sad to say. Even if I do get excited, I keep it internal. Yeah. Usually. No, I've always thought that you, since I've known you all these years, to be pretty just a melancholy person. <laughs> Even though you're delightful to be around and you're totally nice, but you're always on a level of sadness. It's hard to be your friend and excite you. (laughs) You know what, though? I have to say, your parents Mm -hmm. must have been completely disappointed when you said, I want a Coke, and left the room. Oh, I'm sure that was the beginning of a lot of disappointment. So it's Christmas Eve. Bruce Pardo stops at his favorite local cafe on Christmas Eve to have lunch, like he does almost every week. He goes into this place and he gets a raspberry cheese danish and a coffee. That's what he's known for getting. But on this particular day, the cafe's owner noticed that Bruce Pardo also ordered a turkey sandwich, and he sat in a corner booth staring out the window, just watching people on the street going by, doing their last-minute shopping. And the cafe owner noticed that 
Bruce Pardo just seemed very quiet that day and reserved. So when Bruce Pardo was about to leave, uh, the cafe owner goes up to him and shakes his hand. And Bruce Pardo says, goodbye and Merry Christmas to you and your family. And the cafe owner says, same to your family. And then Bruce Pardo just gives a little smile and walks out. And that haunts the cafe owner to this day. So after he has his lunch and this rather ominous conversation with the restaurant owner. Yeah. He goes back home and he starts getting ready for the evening. He gift wraps his flamethrower. Yes. And puts it on a dolly because it's pretty heavy. Mm -hmm. He's got to drag it with him. Yeah. He takes $17,000 and straps it to his leg. Then he gets out his Santa Claus suit, puts it on. He fills all of those compartments that he had told the costume shop owner to sew into the costume. He fills all of those with handguns. He puts the bomb in his car and he heads out. Yes. So at 10 p.m., Bruce Pardo's next door neighbors, um, a father and a son, uh, see him pulling out in a car they do not recognize. Uh, We later learn this is one of the two rental cars he rented for the purpose of this night. And they wish him a Merry Christmas. Arvin Garcia was 17 years old at the time, and he's the son in this situation. And he says, my dad was like, where are you going? And Bruce Pardo said, I'm going to a Christmas party. And then he left. So Bruce is headed to his ex-wife's family's house. Sylvia is spending Christmas Eve at her parents' house with her family, and it's a big family. Sylvia has lots of brothers and sisters, many of whom are married, so there are in-laws all over the place, along with a lot of children. Altogether, there's about 25 people at Sylvia's parents' house on this Christmas Eve. So they have dinner. After that, the adults gather around a table, and they start playing Texas Hold'em, mm-hmm. which is something that I do with my family on the holidays. Yeah, I've heard that. I usually lose money. <laughs> and this game goes on for a long time, as poker games often do. And some of Sylvia's family start getting their things together, and they're getting ready to leave. And it's about 11.30 p.m. at this point. And so as people are kind of getting their things together, um, some people are still playing cards. Everybody hears a knock on the door. The person who answers the door is this little eight-year-old girl. And when she opens the door, she gets really excited because on the other side of that door is Santa Claus. Yeah. And he is carrying a rather large wrapped Christmas present. Yes. So the girl opens the door, sees Santa Claus. She gets really excited. Santa Claus reaches in to his coat, pulls out an eight-millimeter handgun, And shoots this eight-year-old girl in the face. As she's running up to him. Mm -hmm. As soon as uh, Santa Claus shoots this little girl, he turns the gun on two of Sylvia's brothers, who happen to be in that room right behind the front door. And neither of those two men died immediately. Uh, One of them recognized that that was Bruce Pardo in the Santa suit. And he yelled out that it's Bruce... And he screamed for everyone to run. So now all of these people in this house, all 25 of these people, know what's going on. And they've heard the gunshots. They've heard their relatives scream for everybody to run. And everybody starts panicking. One woman jumped out of, uh, this was a two-story house. One woman jumped out of a second floor window, broke her ankle. Sylvia, along with her parents, her sisters... And one of her sisters-in-law take cover under the dining room table where they'd been playing poker earlier. 
and Bruce walks through the house. He finds them under there, and he opens fire. And Sylvia is his primary target. Yes. So he's killed her. He's killed everybody under this table. Then Bruce reveals what was in this large gift-wrapped box that he was dragging behind him on a dolly. And it was, of course, that homemade flamethrower that he had made with racing fuel. And he starts torching the place. But in the process of torching this place, he manages to catch both of his own arms on fire and burns them severely. He ends up with third-degree burns on both arms, and the Santa suit melts to his arms. Yes, which would be quite painful. And this, uh, when Bruce is torching this house, this is about the time that that little eight-year-old girl who answered the door who got shot in the face gets up. He shot her in the face, but she apparently turned her head just before he fired, and the bullet entered through her jaw. It was an incredibly serious injury, but it wasn't fatal. And this little girl gets up and runs outside. And her mother sees the little girl go outside, and her mother gets up from where she's hiding and goes after her daughter, gets to her outside, and then she calls 911. He's shooting. He's shooting. What's your address? Ma'am. Ma'am, I understand. I need to know your address. My daughter's been shot. She was shot in the face on the side. She's bleeding. I know. I, I let the officers know. The officers are making sure it's safe for the paramedics. I need a bandage, please. Please come immediately. Immediately. I don't know who else is alive. I know. I know, ma'am. Just stay on the phone with me, okay? I lost family. There's 30 people, 25 people. I know. I know. So by the time the police and the firefighters get there, Bruce Pardo is gone. And this house is engulfed in flames that are extending 50 feet into the air. And it took 80 firefighters to put this blaze out. And even with 80 firefighters there, it took them well over an hour to get this under control. And it took so long because because of the racing fuel that he used. Yeah. It is very difficult to put that out with water. Like I said, when the police and the firefighters get there, Bruce is already gone. It's generally assumed that Bruce had intended to flee the country. And what people believe he was going to do is that he was going to start by flying to his friend's house and then maybe slip over into Canada from there. Right. If that was his plan, it fell apart as soon as he caught himself on fire. Because those burns on his arms were awful. They were third degree burns. His clothing was melted onto them. There's no getting out of going to a doctor at this point. You cannot get on a plane with a Santa Claus suit melted to you. (laughs) Exactly. Um, and even if you can, infection and things are going to set in. You're probably going to die if you don't go to the doctor at that point. Yes. And he obviously did not feel that going to a hospital was a possibility. And so he drives 30 miles to his brother's house. And during that drive, you have to think what was going through his mind. I mean, this is a guy who we believe had planned to skip the country. But now he has injured himself in such a way that he cannot get on a plane And so now he's weighing his options. So when Bruce Pardo arrives at his brother's house, he parks the car about a block away, gets out, goes to his brother's house. His brother's not there. So he breaks in. And while he's inside, he pulls out an 8mm handgun, and he puts it in his mouth, and he blows the back of his head off. When the cops arrive, they find Bruce Pardo's car. They know who he is. They know what he's done. They look into the car, they see all this ammunition, what looks like a lot of very dangerous items in there, and they're not going to take any chances. 
So they call the bomb squad out, and the bomb squad blows the car up. Another grim discovery was made later. They found the second rental car parked outside of the home of his ex-wife's divorce attorney. It had a spare fuel tank in it, maps, clothing, and Christmas presents, and police feel that Bruce Pardo also planned to kill his ex-wife's divorce attorney that same night. But due to his injuries, he was unable to complete that part of the plan. Including himself, Bruce Pardo killed 10 people over the course of that Christmas. Two additional people were shot, but they survived. One of which was that eight-year-old girl. Yes. In addition to that, Bruce Pardo's rampage left 13 children orphaned. Santa, Santa, Santa is coming tonight. Hooray, hooray, hooray. Santa, Santa, Santa is coming tonight with toys for us to play. Let's be merry and let's be gay and sing and shout all day. Cause Santa, Santa, Santa is coming tonight. Hooray, hooray, hooray. Thank you for listening to episode 21 of Where is the Line? We release new episodes on the 1st and the 13th of each month. So if you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. You might also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. We're pretty active on Instagram these days. That's right. In addition to viewing our online presence, you might consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts just like this exceptional person did. Sibitron writes, Another Hollywood Crime Scene listener. Came here from Hollywood Crime Scene. I am so happy the girls recommended it. Such a good podcast. Great job, guys. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that review, Sibitron. And that, by the way, is our last review. It happened. It happened. We have no more... We have no more new reviews to read. So if you leave us a review on Apple Podcast, it is guaranteed to get read on the next episode. Do you see the sweat beating up on my upper lip? Samantha is really upset. <laughs> in addition to, or in the stead of, leaving us a review, you can leave us a voicemail, just like these resplendent persons did. Our first voicemail comes from Sarah from Down Under. Hey, hello, it's Sarah and Natasha from the... From Australia. <laughs> Hi. So we just listened to your shit show and it was shit. Um, I love you. Oh. <laughs> Sarah's in love. I'm not. Oh my God, I listened to this episode um, about a man that wanks off with his feces. Yeah, that's one of them. Oh my god. This is not a I know, I know, but I think they would really appreciate that. That's the wrong show. Really disgusting. Okay. There's a video out there of him doing it too. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. We just want to go touch base, let you know that we care. We care. We love you. And we just wanted to let you hear our voices. We had no idea what we were going to say. There's no plan. It's totally. Improv, unedited, real. Yes. The real deal. Yes. <laughs> and someone sucks ass. 
then in hell there'll be unicorns that eat peanut butter and assholes. Anyway, guys, you're welcome. You're welcome. No problem. Bye. It's hard to believe that that voicemail was off the cuff. It sounded so rehearsed to me. It really did. (laughs) I love Natasha and Sarah. I do too. I love hearing them talk. Yeah. So much. (laughs) So, so much. Our next voicemail is from Nurse Danny. My name's Danny. I am a nurse in a hospital and I work night shift. Last night, I had a patient who was on a bowel prep program, which means you drink four liters of this liquid that basically makes you shit until your poop is clear. And co-host, she'll understand the colonoscopy bowel prep, probably. But this person was already very musky. Like, imagine an entire person that smelled like a week-old, unwashed vagina. And, uh, like, let me set the stage. The soles of her feet were black. She had, like, all these pock marks and, like, scars and, like, itchy and, like, all this stuff. She's just kind of, like, tweakery. Anyway, so she is having her first shit of the night on this bowel prep, which is, like, violent. And uh, she, she's, she's having an emergency, basically, of, like, putting on her call light and... I'm trying to arrange the commode. It's just like a bucket seat that you sit on and shit in. And I'm trying to put it close to her, everything. She's already got her her pants down. She's connected to an IV. She's getting a blood transfusion. Everything is like, ah, ah, ah. You're like, ah. And I walk behind and she just rips ass with like the most ancient fart that has been trapped inside of her for millennia. Like, since she was born, this fart has been inside of her. And my mouth was open. And it just, like, I inhaled it. Open mouth, tasting and smelling this buttery musk. Like, buttery. (laughs) It's just, like, coats everything. And uh, I had to keep a straight face while I was doing that. Anyway, that's the life. That's the life. It's not really a like obscure story, but that's what happened to me last night. She got cut off. There's, I think there's a three minute limit. Well, if you'd like to tell us more of the <laughs> buttery musk fart story, <laughs> give us a call back and let's hear the end of that. Yeah, I want to finish gagging so <laughs> I can vomit. <laughs> I'm so sorry that that happened to you, Danny. And it's really interesting that Danny called in. That voicemail came in the night that we were recording the last episode, which was uh, with Nurse Peanut. That's right. I remember that. Very weird coincidence. Yeah, that's a weird coincidence. And finally, we have an anonymous caller who is obviously someone who knows me. Kevin, hmm. I'm going to slide my finger down your fingernail. And you're not going to like it. Hunt. Oh, my. Well, she got my name right at the end. Yeah, she did. The fingernail thing. This is somebody that knows me because I have this thing with my fingernails. Mm-hmm. You so, know about this, right? 
Explain it. I have this thing with my fingernails where I cannot stand if someone puts their finger on my fingernail and rubs their finger towards the tip of my finger. Uh It makes me feel, and I know it's not true, but I feel like my fingernails are coming out and then I have to push them back in. So when somebody rubs their finger across my fingernail, I have to push my fingernails back in. Okay. Yeah. No, that just gave me a little shiver. I get it. (laughs) So they definitely know you. So thank you for that call, Brittany. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) If you'd like to leave us a voicemail of your own, you can give us a call at 386-227-7848. What does that spell? Dumb ass tit. Again, that number is 386-227-7848. Dumb ass tit. This episode of Where's the Line was brought to you by the Etsy store Death Fem Dirge. This is actually the Etsy shop of one of our listeners, Corey. She makes wonderful things. She does, and she's also a taxidermist, and she has assured me that she does sometimes occasionally visit Alabama, and the next time that she does, we're going to go pick up some roadkill, and she's going to give me a crash course on taxidermy. Excellent. So if you'd like to buy yourself a sparkling hog skull, a wet fetal pig specimen, or maybe a snake spine in a jar. You can visit Deathfem Dirge on Etsy, and I realize that that's hard to spell, and that's why we now have a link to her Etsy store on our website. So if you go to whereistheline.net and click on shop below the garbage that we sell (laughs) that's overpriced, right below that you can find some very reasonably priced and fairly morbid items. For sure. From Deathfem Dirge. That's going to do it for this episode of Where is the Line? Happy holidays. We'll see you again soon. Goodbye. Kids, when you go to bed, stay away from your closets and don't look under your bed.